Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, and thank you for joining me today on the show. We have Mandy Ralston. Mandy, thank you for joining Behavior Babes Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to see you this morning. Yes, I love it. For those who can't see us, we are matching black and white uh, outfits today in different directions. Um, but seems fitting, although not intentional, not intentional at all. Mandy, let's start by having you explain who you are, give an introduction, if you if you will, for our listeners um, who are here joining us on today's show. Sure. Uh, well, I'm Mandy Ralston. Uh, pronouns are she, her. Uh, I grew up in Weston, West Virginia, which was a town of about 3,000 people. And I'm now here in Lexington, Kentucky. I got here by way of a track and basketball scholarship um, where I transferred after my freshman year down to a a small liberal arts college named Center College in Danville, Kentucky. And then I just stayed. Uh, uh, So, yeah, I I am a two-time founder of an ABA clinic. Um, The most recent one was Verbal Behavior Consulting. I founded that in 2007. I sold that in 2019 to a large PE back group. Um, and now I am a recovering entrepreneur having fallen off the wagon again to create non-binary solutions uh, as the founder and CEO with this um, healthcare technology firm where I'm making clinical decision support systems for other ABA providers and constituents, constituents excuse me, of uh, autism and autism service providing, so. I think that was well, the most succinct time I've ever actually done that. So yeah, I was going to say that's so. I think the most succinct background information I've ever heard of somebody's entire like life, if you will, in <laughs> career. So I'll draw it out of you a bit more. One, I don't know where Weston, West Virginia is, but I um, did my undergraduate in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Do you are you familiar oh, wow. with that area? Like how close or how far apart are those areas? Is Shepherdstown, is that the northern panhandle or is that south? Where is it's over by like Martinsburg, Harpers Ferry. Yeah, okay. Um, so Weston is like right in the middle of West Virginia. It's an hour south of Morgantown. Okay. So yeah, it's right yeah. between Morgantown and Charleston, basically. So if you're going up 79, uh, once you hit Charleston, that's mile marker zero. And Weston is exit 99. So it's 99 miles north of Charleston. So. All right. Well, hey, there we go. I was like, West Virginia, I haven't thought or talked about that part of my past in quite some time. Um, but a lot I enjoyed about living there, the fall, the hiking, the campfires, uh, the waterfalls, so beautiful yeah. and fantastic. So two-time, I love this, two-time founder of ABA organizations, but let, let's let's back up. How in the world did you hear about behavior analysis and what drew you to it? Because you're all in it, sounds like. Yeah, it's been a minute. Um, so in 1999, my senior year at Center, uh, I had a quote-unquote abnormal psychology class. And my textbook for that course had two paragraphs about uh, a diagnosis called autism. Two paragraphs. And one of the sentences in the paragraph said that autism was diagnosed in one in every 10,000 individuals. And so here we are today. I think we're up to, what, 137? Um so that's been quite something as a phenomenon to watch happen uh, with the, the rate of diagnosis, right? 
how did I hear about ABA? So within that two paragraphs, it also said that applied behavior analysis was the best known sort of gold standard treatment for children with autism based on a bunch of studies that came out of UCLA back in the 70s, thanks to a guy named Ivar Lovas. And so I, I wrote a research paper about all this. And then I found out that I had a friend up here in Lexington that was actually, quote unquote, doing ABA um, by way of about seven different families here in the area that were sharing the cost of flying a consultant out from California once a quarter to teach college students and high school students, here's what you do for the next three months. I'm going to hand you all these pre-printed worksheets you know, to take all of your data with and then hop on the plane and fly back to California. And so everybody was just trying to figure it out, right? Uh, the, you know, we, we had heard that this was the best known therapy for individuals uh, for early intervention and, and parents were just trying to cobble together whatever kind of program they could to help their kids. Um, but then, you know, we quickly figured out there's a lot lacking in quality with this type of service provision. Uh, so the, the friends and I, there were three, four women. Uh, we founded a group called Behavioral Intervention for Autistic Children in 1999. And we grew that thing very quickly uh, because the need was so great. Um, we ended up with 125 clients and 85 employees. We had an office in Lexington, one in Covington, one in Louisville. Um, and we were highly reliant on a, a very small uh, Medicaid program called Impact Plus here. And, um, you know, we, we did it our best, but we weren't business people. And uh, that program, you know, was very thinly funded and a lot of regulations changed. And so we had to wrap that one up around 2003. And that was my first very expensive education in business. <laughs> <laughs> I love that education. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I spent the next four years between 2003 and 2007 driving all over Indiana uh, Ohio and Kentucky to anybody that could pay out of pocket pocket for these services, right? Because there was little to no insurance coverage at that point in time. And so again, here I am operating as a consultant to families that were finding independent contractors, paying them out of pocket. I'm doing sort of the same thing that the California consultant was once doing and cobbling together these programs. <clears throat> and yeah, I, I spent about 40,000 miles a year driving all over the place to these families, the ones that could actually afford this kind of this kind of programming and was very, um, uh, I, I was disenchanted, let's say, with the quality of those programs. And so I thought, well, here I go again. I said I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to start another ABA clinic. And so I founded Verbal Behavior Consulting in 2007, right in the middle of a big old recession. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, and then once Kentucky passed the insurance mandate in 2011, it took about three years for insurance companies to get all their operations in order. And, and at that time, if um, if you were not in network, then you were able to set your own rates and the insurance companies had to treat you as an in-network provider, even though you <clears throat> weren't yet and so on and so forth. And by 2014, they, they got everything put together and we went in network and things just exploded uh, as far as growth go. And it's it's really hard when you've got a, a long line of people getting outside your door asking for services to say, I'm sorry, we can't take you right now. So we grew and grew and grew. Um, we ended up with 50 employees and 
about 65 clients at that point and, and ended up selling 2019, which turned out to be about the best happenstance that I ever had because who knew a pandemic was coming six months later. So, so whatever your original question was, uh, yeah, how did I learn about ADA? That's, that's been sort of my trajectory. Um, and here I am in the middle of a big old recession again, <laughs> starting another company. So I hope it goes uh, as well or better than the last time. So. <laughs> Mandy, there's so many things you said that seem to have paralleled certain experiences I had. I couldn't help but like really find myself visually leaning in, being like, wait, you too? Um, I find it very powerful. And I'm not sure that anyone on any of the episodes I've had has really ever captured what services looked like initially, you know, in the late 90s, for example. And we also, I worked in my, during my undergrad with a family, I found a flyer, I didn't know what I was doing, but we had this consultant that would fly in shared by multiple families. And I think that's so important. One, I, that continues to drive us as we're talking about throughout your entire career, quality, 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 raising the bar, showing people that exist, letting them know what it feels like to sample it, to experience it, and then to expect or hope for nothing less than that as they as they go on. And I often tell people, you know, what I called it imperfect, imperfect ABA. I was like, even with this really imperfect application, the learner I was with was able to go into um, school without any additional supports. And for me, I was just like, I don't know what we did. I'm not exactly sure I could define it. It was a little, uh, I like how you said, you know, cobbled together in that way, but yet there was just this great impact. And so I was like, okay, how do I learn more? How do I, how do we help families? I definitely did not take an entrepreneurial route in that way. Or, you know, sometimes people will say, yeah, but you're like an entrepreneur in spirit. I said, oh, yes, but I'm lacking in the bank account part. Um, and the joke is, well, not that, that's not how we define being an entrepreneur. It's not how much money is in your account. So you also talked about learning experiences and uh, uh, expensive lessons and recessions. And uh, I did some reflecting about big changes in my life and they happen to surround things like recessions or the global pandemic or a, a shared event like 9-11. And it's opportunity. Sometimes we have the great fortune to see what's coming or, or to kind of understand or how to thrive with what is. But to just think about the pandemic in particular, uh, I'm with you and I really, really, really connect with that. It was the best happenstance. So here you are. It's 2020. A pandemic is occurring. And where do you live now? Can you remind me? We've talked about all these cool places you've traveled. Yeah, uh, Lexington, Kentucky. So okay. blue dot in the red state. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what I hear about Austin, Texas. They're like, well, we're the blueberry, you know, over here. And I'm like, okay. And then, um, and then I moved from Hawaii to Florida. So a lot of changing in color there for sure. Um, for, sure. for sure. Well, you also mentioned the impact of insurance and you talked about when that happened, there was this sort of, you know, ex explosion. And part of why I think it's so critical for us to connect that early story you were sharing about what it looked like is that only families who could afford to pay out of pocket were able to pay out of pocket. Or if we were able and fortunate to have a grant or some sort of limited funding, but when that funding was gone, those services were gone. And, you know, insurance has definitely been a double-edged sword, but it has created access. So with that, you're now 
hold on, we've we've now made it to 2020. How fill us in 2020 to 2022, and what is what is the description, the uh, impetus, the fire behind non-binary solutions? Sure. Uh, well, so 2020, um, I was within the walls of uh, that large PE group that had acquired my clinic and spent some time hanging out in their clinical team um, and then uh, was placed into a sidecar organization that was uh, in charge of making clinical decision support systems. Um, and so that's where I first learned about this technology, um, which has been in the healthcare field for four decades, right? but it is a, a pretty nascent uh, burgeoning uh, technology for applied behavior analysis. Um, and it's, it's really hard to explain for people that haven't seen it, right? But the way that I try to, to explain it for folks is it, it's like having technological bumper rails for your brain <laughs> so that you can really narrow the focus of how are you going to go from intake to outcomes and really understand all of the different decision points that you're having to make in treatment planning and knowing what information to think about during each of those decision points. You know, it's like, well, what assessment should I use based on what, right? Um, what is this person's actual quality of life needs? Uh, how can I make these goals both measurable and meaningful? <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's, it's so difficult because, you know, the, the impact that insurance has had on our field is that we have had a 500% increase in providers in the last 10 years. And over half of them have less than three years post-certification experience. And there's not enough dinosaurs like you and me hanging around to actually mentor or train or supervise all these people that are coming into the field. And so this is my um, humble best attempt at how to provide that kind of um, mentorship and support at scale, right? To really get to the point that you can have some kind of digital mentorship, if you will, about how to think about these treatment decisions. Because, you know, you, your ability to pass the exam shows that you know how to answer the questions related to what you have to think about, but it doesn't tell you anything about how to think about it. And that, that comes from experience. That comes from a long history of reinforcement and punishment that you and I have been through. Oh, long histories indeed um, that have shaped our behavior. And that's often what I tell people is, you know, if if you can learn from somebody else's doing or having not done, then having to do yourself, well, then, I mean, essentially, you've achieved that rule governance versus the contingency shape needs to just get out there and contact every you know, failure as well as every success. And, you know, my experiences, Mandy, have been that successes do happen on these large scale. When you're talking about scalable, for me, I think about public policy. We talk about insurance. We talk about systems. They are, but they can't be disconnected from the experience. And there's and there's no way that any of us in our first three years have whatever experiences needed to do whatever we're doing, you know, um, by any stretch of the imagination, it's going to take a bit longer than that for me to be probably a robust chef, if you will, even though I started, started picking up uh, some skills during the pandemic there itself. So when you talk about these ideas and I, and, you know, we've had conversations to talk in person, we also interact on social media, the 
the concept behind the phrasing non-binary and there's a hashtag that goes with it. I can see it here, you know, on the image, but what do you mean by that? What do you want people to understand? Or is there something specific you're trying to communicate with that? Yeah. uh, So there's a lot of different nuance to the choice for calling the company non-binary solutions. Um, First and foremost, the hashtag it's not binary is really understanding that more than one thing can be true and accurate at the same time, right? It doesn't have to be a one or a zero. It doesn't have to be a yes or a no. Um, And so, you know, you can be both compassionate and scientific, (laughs) you know? uh, I mean, there's a long list of these issues that are not binary, right? Um, So the other reason is related to the fact that clinical decision supports are not like clinical decision trees, right? It does not drive you to a singular point of yes or no, and this is where you should go. CDSs are um, designed to help you think through uh, different decision points, but also populate recommendations based on literature or evidence-based practices. And so it's not telling you yes or no, it's telling you if you do, these are the things you need to be thinking about, right? Um, And so it doesn't supplant any kind of clinical decisions. Uh, It doesn't supplant the clinician's actual acumen or judgment, right? Um, It just says, here's some things to think about uh, rather than making a decision for you. And then finally, um, non-binary because you are on the autism spectrum, you are something like six times more likely to not identify with the sex assigned at birth, right? Uh, so there's a lot of overlap between non-binary uh, gender expression and individuals on the autism spectrum. So I wanted to also sort of speak to that as well. Um, I, I really like the fact that we're becoming more aware um, and more uh, accepting of lots of different types of expression and gender and sex and so on and so forth. Uh, and so it's a little bit of a nod to the folks on the spectrum that may identify in that way. Yeah, I mean, I knew there had to be at least five different explanations for it. It's very thoughtful and it's very thought provoking. Um, Even if it really was just the one example, what I am gathering from this and what I think about when I engage with, especially your social media content is, is that there isn't one way or another of seeing something, whatever it is that we're looking at. I often find in my journeys and doing some consulting work is that people have this opinion or this belief, this misconception that if you are profiting, you are not being ethical, or if you are ethical, you may not profit, or that if you are profiting um, by running a business, then somehow you are less uh, with helping the people you're trying to help. And it's like, no, no, no. All of those things can coexist. Um, but they need to be very thoughtful. And there's some, you know, like you said, some, some thought bubbles that should really be populating along and throughout that process in teaching. I teach ethics right now for university and oftentimes in the first couple of weeks, they'll be like, so what's the answer? You know, and on a multiple choice question, I'm going to be like, oh, the answer is, you know, see, like there's an answer if it's multiple choice. But a lot of what I try to ingrain and instill in my students and a lot of what I'm really connecting to what you're saying is the idea is that we are problem solvers. We are presented with a plethora and indefinite amount of potential problems in the world and in our own lives. And so what are the ways in which we should be 
thinking about conceptualizing and weighing our options as we're encountering each new situation. Then I'll have students who will say to me right around that third or fourth week, so about, about a third into the course, they'll say, but then how do I know if I'm right? And who, who's holding me accountable? And does the BACB hold us accountable? And I've got a lot of opinions and experiences, as you said, with those types of things. But in speaking to particularly our next wave of early career analysts, they're, they're in their very first semester. The idea is these are the types of questions you should be asking yourself while you're going through the scenario or as you're preparing for it. This is exactly what we talk about identifying your mentors. This is where you can go and engage with the literature. Um, but at the same time, it's a lot, it's a, it's a big overwhelm, you know, for all of us, we're all out there, uh, trying to do the best that we can do. And it becomes very overwhelming. So when you're engaging with, um, individuals, are you, are you really supporting individuals within organizations, the organizations themselves contact you, or it's a little bit of both, but you're being contacted by the organization. I'm not clear on that. Ha, ha, tell me more about it. Yeah, so I've I've got multiple uh, innovator clients at this point. They're sort of the, my beta clients, and I, I'm building custom models for them depending on the the issues that they're trying to solve. Um, <clears throat> but I'm also uh, this is my first time as an entrepreneur where I'm actually raising capital and trying to get this tech startup off the ground at the same time. And so I'm also working on developing uh, some discrete models that can be licensed by providers, um, parents, caregivers, so on and so forth to, to really address some, some really basic quality of life issues that I know are near and dear to almost every parent that I've ever interviewed. Um, and so, yeah, uh, there, there's two different types of customers that are, are, are working with non-binary solutions at this point. And I'm having a lot of fun, uh, which is surprising 24 years into this, right? Like I'm, I'm <laughs> having fun discovering new ways to use all the experience that I've had. Uh, because again, it's like with, with these models, the reason I know to ask half of these questions is because I didn't ask the question. <laughs> uh several times and so i i got a lot of feedback you know i've got a lot of experience which usually means bad decisions <laughs> you know uh <laughs> that that pays off in making the next best decision the next time so so yeah um it's interesting you're talking about oh the the, the choices that everybody has to make uh, along the way and then and, and how you gain that experience and i think about you know again with comparing us to healthcare because we're supposed to be a medical model at this point they, the term is that you practice medicine, right? Even the medical community doesn't have binary answers to how to treat different conditions, right, or symptoms. And so it's the same thing with us addressing our clients, um, things that are important to them, things that they want to change, things that they want to work on. It's, it's a matter of practicing. It's not a matter of choosing the right one thing um, because there's so many different variables that you have to account for uh, within every single instance that you're making these types of decisions for. I mean, one of my um, soapbox issues is just the fact that everybody's lumped under this one diagnosis code of F84.0, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. Autism. Autism. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to think that you're throwing everybody under one diagnosis. And I think that's creating problems, not just within practice of behavior analysis, but in society, I think that's why we've got so much infighting 
uh, on social media about yeah. autism. You know, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I have been obviously aware and engaged in a lot of the discussion around that. But I remember when I was Simmons, I had the opportunity to partner or be involved with the Asperger's Association of New England. And I remember, and, and that was when the diagnostic uh, criteria was separate, when we had Asperger's and we had autism. And there was a lot of debate in that in the communities then about if you were Asperger's, you weren't getting access to services or you weren't able to. And so there was this divide um, both times, I guess, where it's like, well, we all we all should get services and there's no such thing as high functioning or low functioning. You either have a high quality and a good quality of life or you don't. And so looking at it more from those kinds of like, as you were talking about quality measures, I think being so much more important um, or or even accurate. And so there's so much discussion and debate about wanting to be or not be lumped together. And what's so interesting about that is, of course, those same discussions. But what we have now is 15 years since that change or however many years since that change. And we see the impact of that change and the impact of that change, as you're mentioning, from a, a practice uh, matter is, is a very big deal. But also what it is, as you were saying, from uh, an identity like standpoint within the communities themselves. And so. Uh, there's a lot of opinions about that. And I think what people may not always recognize is that there's certain uh, consequences or decisions, right? Yes, that come from that. Yeah, Manny's pointing, it's not binary, but non-binary. <laughs> and, and it really, I think, speaks to also the context, right? Like we really do need to layer the context into everything before we can really understand a situation. Um, so I just appreciate so much that you that you are bringing that up because I think, I think that some people who were in favor years ago would not be in favor of that same decision now and vice versa. So it's not only that the community is still, you know, finding divide, it's that we have that experience, many of us, um, and have used that information to inform our opinions moving forward and advocating with what the community themselves really, hopefully, are expressing that they want. Yeah, yeah, it's just, a, I, I see, again, the sort of weaponizing of the language on social media, right, and, you know, ABA is cruel, and nobody should be subjected to that, and it's, it's again, the hashtag, it's not binary, like, just because you share a label with somebody or some Venn diagram of characteristics that overlap, it does not mean you get to speak for everybody in that group, right, and I think, you can advocate for yourself, absolutely. Um, but there are lots of different people with this diagnosis that have different opinions about what they need, what they want, and how they want to go about trying to achieve that. So I just, I want to encourage everybody to, as you say, pause, take a breath, you know, and, and, and think about who are they advocating for um, and how that advocate, uh, that advocacy, you know, could impact everybody. Um, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't think it did anybody any favors by putting everybody under this one diagnosis code. I really don't think it did. I think, you know, I've, I've used this analogy before. It's, it's sort of like saying everybody, everybody in the medical profession could treat cancer, right? Just cancer is a, a blanket diagnosis, Never mind which kind of cancer you have, so on and so forth. Uh, and so, yeah, expecting our young providers to come out and know everything there is to know about every person with autism is ridiculous. 
Well, <clears throat> I mean, I don't, I don't presume to know, <laughs> As, nor, nor would I imagine would you, but certainly yeah. all of the, the intricacies and nuances, the, the part you said though, that, that I'm really thinking about is the weaponizing on social media. I think social media plus uh, everybody being at home for a long period of times, plus some incredibly evocative situations and experiences and incidents, just the perfect fuel for this fire. And I think it can be used in a really positive way, but I don't, I don't believe that it is when it's, when it's being weaponized as you know, that language in particular, that imagery. And I find this interesting crux. Sometimes I tell people like, oh, social media. And they're like, wait a second, behavior babe just said, oh, about social media. And I'm like, no, Amanda Kelly said, oh, behavior babe loves it. I'm just kidding. We're the same person. Um, no, I mean, what it is, what it can be, and what the purpose that initially it served for me was an ability to engage with people that are not next to you. And when we do that, we hopefully are broadening our experiences and hopefully broadening our perspectives or pausing to taking opportunity to see other people's perspectives. I mean, our time together has gone so quickly and I'm certainly happy to continue and, and, and stay on. But before we end, I want to make sure, Mandy, that people are aware, one, hashtag, it's not binary, camel case, for those who don't know, capitalizing the first letter of the word in, in the hashtag. So if I were going to say hashtag, it's not binary, the I, the N, and the B would be capitalized. That's a nice disability accommodation uh, or ability combination, accommodation. Where will people go and find you beyond that? I know we said ugh, social media, but double-edged sword. So there's got to be some opportunity there. <laughs> yeah. Um you can find me on most of the social media platforms, except for Twitter. That's, that's another talk show altogether. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can find me on uh, nonbinarysolutions.com or amandaralston.com. That's R-A-L-S-T-O-N. Um, you can find me on Instagram, uh, either as Amimda Ralston, as I am living the meme. Um, you can also find me on social media or Facebook. I should say you should find me on Facebook. That is definitely the non-professional uh, version of myself. So buyer beware. <laughs> um, Non-binary solutions is also on Instagram and you can definitely find me on LinkedIn where I, I try to hang with the more professional types as best as possible. So. It's so fun engaging with you, particularly on LinkedIn. That platform, I feel like, had some resurrection during the pandemic itself. And the engagement on there is sometimes giving us access to new audience and audience members and new uh, individuals to engage with. So that has been a lot of fun for anyone who's like, what the hell are these dinosaurs talking about LinkedIn for? Like, just, <laughs> just check it out for like a hot minute. See if maybe we're, we're, we know a little bit about what we're talking about. I, I think we might. Mandy, thank you so much for joining me on the show, for explaining uh, a bit about what, what you're doing right now and where you're headed next. Uh, time will only tell. Thank you for your commitment to our field and for sticking with it. I find it incredibly exciting that you are having fun and experiencing your passions 20 some years into the field. For anyone else who's feeling icky or itchy or burnt or blah, um, that's okay. You know, you can feel that. And there's still this potential, these potentials for future fun 
um, exciting passions to be ignited this far into a career, which I love. I love, love, love. So thank you so much for joining today. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's a real pleasure to be here and I look forward to continuing to watch what you do as well. Yeah. So for everyone, I'm going to post all of Mandy's links. So if you didn't catch them, you'll catch them when I post them and you'll see them and be able to forever access them. And you'll also be able to access her podcast as well as others by going directly to www.behaviorbabe.com.